Uh, this morning we're going to be in Philippians, the fourth chapter. Uh, if you've been in the church a while, you're very familiar with this terrain. Uh, if you're not, this is one that I am happy to introduce to you this morning. You can follow along on the Bible app if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, the instructions are basically right there on your screen. If you do have a Bible with you, then open it up to Philippians chapter 4. And if you're not familiar with where it is, you can uh, look toward the very end of your Bible. And most, uh, and if you have one of the big thick ones, it's probably, uh, oh, seven-eighths of the way through. Uh, and flip around in there and you're likely to find uh, Philippians there. I... Um, I want to, for those of you who didn't have the opportunity to be here last weekend, I want to reintroduce you to the idea behind this series, which is to be able to see around corners, be able to see what's coming in the future. And we talked last week using the imagery of a periscope, which if you're not familiar, there's two versions of a periscope right there. The idea is you look into something and it actually helps you be using mirrors to go from this part over to that part, over to that part. And you can virtually direct a periscope almost any direction you'd like to. Now, you can use it as a kid's craft, which is the way that many of us built these things in elementary school, or you can also use them in war. You can be in a submarine and use it to look up above the waterline and to see your enemy and to be able to, uh, to do things of that nature. I want to uh, suggest to you, as the Scriptures did last week, that the Bible and the Word of God itself becomes the mirror by which we see the future. It's the declarations of God the truth of God as revealed to us in Scripture that helps us to see what's actually coming in the future. That there's much of it that we can, we can see and we can note cultural trends and we can see little inflection points here and there in business and in other places. But if you really want to know what is irrefutable in the future, uh, it begins with uh, the person and work of Jesus and with what God says and reveals to us in His Word. Now I want to introduce you to this woman right here. This striking redhead. Uh, her name is Cassandra. She's from Greek mythology. Some of you may know the myth of Cassandra. Uh, but uh, there's an old joke that says she was actually uh, the first mother in world history that uh, basically was introduced with this particular affliction. Uh, you'll be familiar with it if you're a parent. Cassandra was cursed with uttering things that were true, but nobody would listen to her. Um, so you can see why parents would resonate with Cassandra a lot. Uttering truisms, and um, she, was, she was struck with this particular curse, and so she would get up and she would give true prophecies, but nobody would pay any mind. I got to think that somewhere in the heavenly realms, God, Paul, look at us and go, I've been trying to tell them the truth for a long time. And they won't listen. It is a terrible feeling, is it not, to shout the truth from the mountaintops and nobody believe you. Nothing determines our future, sisters and brothers. Nothing will determine your future more than whether you hear the words of Scripture and believe them. Nothing. We have an anxiety epidemic in the country we live in. Some of it is, is medical or chemical. Some of it is overdiagnosis. I certainly have a lot of doctor friends who believe that, that it's been overdiagnosed and thus overprescribed, some of that medication. Some of it, though, and this is the kind Paul's going to talk about today, is self-induced. We have a problem with that as well. Whipping ourselves up into uh, fits of anxiety. Uh, there we go. Spirit is back now. Um, that we whip ourselves up into a spirit of anxiety to the point that, yes, we bring, get this, 
Emotional support horses on planes. Yes, that's a thing now. Emotional support kangaroos, which is kind of cool, actually. I wouldn't mind if somebody brought a kangaroo, and I've never been that close to one. Um, but you get to a point where you've got to take your horse with you on a trip or you can't function. Is this really a, 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 is this a point to a positive trend in society? This was the year that Philippians 4, 6 dethroned the infamous Jeremiah 23 passage as the most popular verse for American Christians. And I wonder what it might have to say. Well, we're going to look at it this morning. I guess the question I'm throwing out there is since we oh, worry about things, worry about our finances, worry about our kids, worry about our kids' finances, we worry about boyfriends, girlfriends, what's going on in the world, climate change, national debt, situation in Iran, situation in our neighborhood, what's going on in the city, how's the grand project doing, whatever, blah, 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 and we roll around and we toss and we turn, I need to lose some weight, I need to do this, I need to do that, whatever it may be. Do we have ears to hear? Or is Paul going to be Cassandra? Is he going to preach the truth to us only to have it go in one ear and out the other? So that we can go on pretending that we don't really have a problem with this or that the answer is found somewhere else. I'm going to give you some truths from the Scriptures this morning. Here's four of them. I'm going to rattle them off to you in a row and then we're going to unpack each one of them. Here's what he's going to say in Philippians chapter 4. When God is near, anxiety isn't. Don't let today steal tomorrow. Where your worry is, there your heart will be also. And that Christ secures our present and our future. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4 to 9 to start, and then we'll carry on from, from there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now remember, Paul's writing this from prison. So this is not a guy that doesn't have anything go wrong in his life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not, here's your verse of the year, folks, according to the Bible app. Do not be anxious about anything. Really? I got that one licked, huh? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so we're going to start here. When God is near, anxiety isn't. Now, he talks about rejoicing in the Lord always, and that phrase in the Lord is something that is passed on throughout the book of Philippians. Everything that he asks people to do, he often will throw that tagline. Do this in the Lord. Yodia and Syntyche, agree. They're fighting with each other. Agree in the Lord, for instance. Rejoice in the Lord. So let me just ask this. Uh, I want to ask you to raise your hand. If you're living an overwhelmingly joyful life, 
or if you're living a life that is filled and riddled with anxiety. Many people in here would say, no, I'm not living a very joyful life, if I'm being honest. For many of us, the reason is something related to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. But Paul would suggest to us that joy is more determined by mindset and attitude and an awareness of the proximity of God than anything else. Perhaps I can prove it to you quickly. Uh, let's say that your doctor calls you on Monday, and he says, uh, Hi, Tim. I'll use me as an example. Tim, I need you to call me. We got the test results back. Okay, so now I have a choice as to what I can do. What am I likely to do? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, no. I have fill-in-the-blank disease. I don't know. What is it? Heart failure? Cancer? I don't know, emphysema? Uh, you know, you just kind of go through your thing. What, 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 I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is. Next day, I pick it up, and he goes, I just want you to know you are the peak of fitness, Tim. I've never seen. I just want to let you know how much I admire you, okay? <laughs> All right. Now, did anything in that little moment, did anything actually change? At any moment, was I any healthier or worse off than I was? Now, what did change was how much joy I had in my life at that moment. Okay. So it's one of the great tricks that the devil uses is to create that moment, and by getting you to focus on that, you no longer can see the future. At all. You're too focused on today or what might happen to you that could be bad to be thinking about all the blessings you have in the present or the ways you see God working in the present. You're certainly not thinking about, boy, I thank God for all the years He's given me already. So no matter what comes tomorrow, I'm ready. No matter what happens to me in diagnosis, I know God's going to help me get through this. None of that's there. Because it's like when you leave here today, let's just say you're heading to your house, and you get to an intersection, and all of a sudden you think the car in front of you is going to go through the yellow light, but they don't. They hit their brakes. You're maybe not quite the following distance you should now what happens? Well, you slam on yours. All of a sudden, you have the death grip on the steering wheel, and you are pushing the brake to the floor as hard as you can. Now, at that moment, how focused on your future are you? Can you see another car on the street? You cannot. It's you and the guy in front of you. That's it. You see what anxiety does? Completely takes away everything around you. All perspective is now gone. And so then when the preacher gets up in the pulpit and talks to you about what a future you've got, you roll your eyes and you go, if you only knew, brother, you would not be talking so much about the future because if you knew what an awful morning I had, you would know that I don't have anything. Or you, you'd know that my husband walked out on me. You'd know that my wife walked out on me. You'd know that so-and-so in my house is struggling with alcohol. You'd know what a knucklehead my kid is. You would know what it's like to go to bed lonely every single night. You would know, and all we're doing is grabbing the steering wheel and pushing the brake pedal as hard as we can to the floor. And what Paul's trying to do is say, no, 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 no. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And then he goes, and again I say, rejoice. Like we wouldn't hear it the first time. Like he's concerned he might be Cassandra. In case you didn't hear it the first time, I say again, rejoice. Why? Because you're in the Lord. And then he says, don't be anxious about anything, because the Lord is at hand. 
Oh, the Lord's at hand. That's the way the ESV puts it. I like that better than near. Near can be in the eye of the beholder. 100 miles from here is near. How far is it to Riverside? Eh. Mm. Temecula, is it far? Mm. So when we say the Lord's near, what he wants us to know he's at hand. He's so close I can just reach out and grab him. He's at hand. When you eat dinner, your spoon is at hand. God is at hand. And that's the reason for what he says. The reason you rejoice always, the reason that you're not anxious about anything is because the Lord's at hand. He's not out there somewhere in the distance. Now, it's not uncommon for people of faith to wonder, is God really that close? So you can read the Psalms and tell that. God, why are you so far away? Is how the psalmist feels at times. But that doesn't take away from the fact that the Lord is at hand, that he's close. The one circumstance in life that will genuinely bring joy or not to your life, if you want to know, is that one right there. Is the Lord near? Are you in the Lord? If you're in the Lord, the Lord is near. And you're in the Lord. So therefore, I rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Then he adds this little dash. He says, with thanksgiving. A little phrase passed over when we memorized this a lot. In fact, uh, I actually did a little word search. It's often uh, taken away on the refrigerator magnet. If you really want to know what we're stressing, look at the refrigerator magnets. Look at the little frame thing you put over your toilet in your bathroom. That's how you can tell the, the way that people are trying to frame ideas for people. But everything with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't leave out Thanksgiving. Very, very important. You know what Thanksgiving does? It creates an alternative moment where instead of fearing, oh no, I'm going to wreck the car, it creates a parallel moment where you focus completely on the good. So instead of slamming on the brake and fearing death and losing all perspective, Thanksgiving kind of lifts your eyes, helps you remember the Lord is at hand, and gets you to focus on things that if I'm only going to worry about something, I'm going to worry about the right thing. I'm, that is, I'm going to worry about being too blessed. I'm going to spend my time giving thanksgiving to God for what He's given me, not worrying that I'm going to lose something. So, point number two becomes, don't let today steal tomorrow. Verse 8, if you want to go back there in your Bibles, your Bible apps, he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, this is after he talks about prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I cannot tell you, sisters and brothers, how important this is. You cannot inhale the secondhand smoke of constant negative inputs and then run the race that you've been called to run without a wheeze. It's just not possible. The more that we think about God and His blessings as opposed to the worst going on in the world, the more we see the future as something real. Now, right now some of you are going, well, Jesus says... That we shouldn't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, you're right. We shouldn't worry about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And if you're focused so much on today and what you think is happening today, then 
you have to do some pretty great acrobatics emotionally to find yourself in a hopeful place. I mean, I mean, give me 10 minutes. I can thoroughly depress you. I can just, I will, I will read to you from the book of death about your life. I can sit there and point out every daggum thing you, anybody you know and care about, thinks is going wrong in your world and in your life. You give me five good minutes with you. And I mean, I can take you from optimism to complete depression. And yet some of us take it like it's an essential oil and wipe it all over ourselves. Negativity. I mean, bottle that and sell it. I mean, just do it in a way that you just soak in it. Give me a, oh, I'm going to watch all the news. I can. I just say, you know, have you seen this? And I, oh, do you see this? And, and moping and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, I'm not sure a horse is big enough for some of us to get on an airplane emotionally. I watch us go and I go, where is this victorious mentality that Paul's talking about from prison? He's not writing it from some penthouse. He's writing it from prison. And where'd that go? Where'd the people of hope go? How are you supposed to think and believe that God has your future in the palm of His hand if you can't even see past the palm of your hand? Because you're so focused on what's going on that you just can't hardly... It's like hitting the brakes to avoid rear-ending somebody. And so one of the best tricks Satan has at his disposal is to make our perspective look like a bad gym where you go get on the treadmill and all the TVs are in front of you. Every one of them, a news station with a different graphic at the bottom talking about the latest catastrophe or what's gone wrong or what injustice in the world has happened. And all you see is that. So that then shapes the world. And then we start listening to the lies of the world around us that tell us, well, that's what reality is. That's the real world. Uh, that's better known to me as the reality fallacy, which suggests that the only, only bad things, only bad things are part of the real world. It's like good doesn't exist. Like, and if it does, it must be fake. Bad is more real than good. Why is that the case? Why... I mean, is chocolate not as real as broccoli? I mean, <laughs> you can kind of go, it's like, just because it's bad doesn't mean it's re any more real than the good. So why do we listen to that? Why do we help people say, well, you just need to know what's going on in the world. Okay, if we're going to go there, that's fine. But let's talk about everything going on in the world then. Okay, good is real too. Not just bad. And what it does is we need, it takes away our vision for what God is already doing. And by doing that, you know what else we're not doing? We're not witnessing to it. Because we're not even sure if we believe it or not. And if we do, we're so scared that everybody's going to say that we're being unrealistic that we dare not say anything. So we go home, I don't know, in a spiritual sense, uh, suck our thumbs and hope that nobody really asks us what we think in a public place. We've got to have a vision for what God is already doing and have the guts to witness to it. I mean, I'm going to give you an example of how this changes your vision. Okay, there's so much stuff going on that's good around the world and through the church. It's mind-boggling and breathtaking. I mean, stuff that, that honestly hasn't been seen since Acts is going on all over the globe. You know of none of it because the spigot 
the well from which we drink is water with a dash of some foul substance. And so it's all got that flavor. There's nothing we can do to change that unless you do what he says here, which is, okay, if you see things that are noble and praiseworthy and good, think about those things. I hear people talking about how the world would be better if the church was gone and there were no Christians in the world. Are you out of your freaking mind? I mean, come on, people. I'm listening to people who call themselves Christians say this. I'm going, are you out of your mind? Do you realize, let me just, I'm going I'm to rant for a second, okay? I'm, you're getting a pre, because listen, no, there's good news and people need to start witnessing to this kind of thing. Do you understand that if just, if, if, if you took half the churches, the whole civilization we live in would crater Almost immediately. Amen. 26% of all the hospitals in the world are run by just the Catholic Church. We're not even talking about the Presbyterians, the Methodists, uh, Jews, anybody else. I mean, the whole thing, I mean, and we're not talking about short term mission, medical mission projects. We're not talking about any of those kinds of things. How about education? There'd be no Harvard, there'd be no Yale, there'd be no Princeton, there'd be no Dartmouth because they were started to train guys like me. Harvard was a preacher. We're anti-education? Really? I mean, California, Pepperdine, USC. Oh, big banners, big plaques right at the front. You know? When the Ebola virus was devastating Africa, and the long tradition of Christians jumping into things when there were plagues, You can go back to the plague of Cyprian in the 250s or so A.D. and see it wiped out two-thirds of Alexandria. Everybody booked it out of there. The Christians dove in and died by the thousands because they were willing to do medical care for people who were sick. And that continued. And people like Ken Brantley, who ended up as Times Man of the Year and all that stuff because he dove in, ended up with Ebola himself, barely survived it, but he survived it. Now he's going back. What kind of crazy guy does that? How about orphan care? What percentage of the children's homes in this world do you think were started by and are sustained by Christians? Christians give roughly double the amount of money to charity that everybody else does. Christians are overwhelmingly the first and most persistent of all groups who work in disaster relief. They're overwhelmingly, number one, in helping the homeless, number one, in helping the elderly. Blood. Who do you think gives the most blood? I'll save you the time. That would be Christians. Okay? And the reason you don't is because we have this belief that the left hand and the right hand should know what's going on. Right? And we don't want to throw things in lights, which is okay. If you want to make sure that no one knows that good is happening. I'm not saying you run ads in the newspaper, whatever. What I'm saying is when he says think about these things, think about them. Don't let today take away tomorrow. Here's another classic. Christianity is dying among young people. Okay, if you, it's been a long time since I recommended a book from the pulpit in this way. There's a book called Confronting Christianity by a gal named Rebecca McLaughlin. You pick it up. In there, she does a whole bunch of demythologizing. But one of them, recent study found that nearly 40% of Americans raised non-religious. Okay, so over here, 40% of people raised non-religious eventually become religious. Meanwhile, 20% of people born religious 
become irreligious over their lifetime. So what that means is, at a rate of two to one, you're more like, if you have three kids born in a hospital, two of them are going to be religious and one of them is not. That you're twice as likely, if you're an atheist, to raise a kid who turns out to be a Christian than the flip of that. Christians hate education. Well, Christians and Jews are the most educated group in the country. There's also the smallest educational gap between men and women among Christians. Bet you didn't hear that one recently. Christianity is also the, by far, this isn't even close, by far the most ethnically diverse religion on earth. By far. It's not even close. The more educated a person becomes as a Christian, the more educated they go, meaning the higher up the educational ladder they go, the more they attend church and the more Christian they become, not less. In addition, thanks in large part to immigration, this is important for us to remember, okay? The orthodoxy of Christianity in America is actually getting stronger, not weaker. So what happens is you have people that do this Christianity where they really are serious about it, overseas, end up coming to America only to find out that we're not very serious about it. And so that part, the part that's not serious, is dying off, whereas immigrants are bringing this newfound orthodoxy of faith into the country. It's a beautiful thing. Fastest growing Christian movement in the world. Guess what country it is? Iran. How about that? The Iranian church. Now, I heard somebody say China. You're not far off. It's spreading so fast in China, experts believe there will be more Christians in China than in America by the year 2030, which is only 10 years from now. And that it will be a majority Christian country by 2050. Now, think about that. So you can sit here... These, the, the, and, and go, well, no, church is dead. And the world will be better off if we all just packed up and went home. And, but it's fine. If people want to think that way, okay, then you can do your uh, mope in the Lord always routine, okay? <laughs> but you want to rejoice in the Lord, he gives you the recipe, don't let him be Cassandra today. Don't let him do that. Okay, listen to what he's saying. If you see these things, think about them. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, trust me, the, the problems of the world are going to find you. If you're really worried, oh, no, then I won't know all the bad that's happening in the world, I promise you, it will find you. Okay, if you doubt it, try it. Try to just, you know, instead of that essential oil all the time, try po- the more positive stuff where you see the hand of God working in your life, working in the world. Focus there, okay? And, and if you come up to me a year later and say, you know what, I haven't heard anything bad, Tim. Okay? Then, and, and I don't know. It it'll just won't happen. So <laughs> it will find you. But if you focus there, okay, and then try to find something to be hopeful about, uh, as, a, as, a, as a garnish on an otherwise crowded plate, you're going to be in trouble. I'm going to give you a bullet list of some practical things here if you want to jot them down. Uh, I did type them into the Bible app too, so they'll be there for you, just not at length. But uh, um, practical things, if you want to learn to live joyfully, here are a few. Uh, first of all, acknowledge everything that you have is God's. Amen. Earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. I'm not entitled to anything. One of the things that will depress you the most is feeling like you missed out on something you deserved. Reality is, I probably deserve sin and death. Anything I get is a privilege. It's the grace of God. 
And um, I'm here to tell you, sometimes it's, uh, uh, and I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals. I mean, hundreds of funerals. And, and in those poignant moments, it's very easy for Satan to take away perspective and for those even Christian funerals to become about the loss of the last part of the person's life without giving thanks for the whole life that they received from that person, the fellowship they had with that person. Both are true, uh, and it's normal to feel grief, but, but don't forget to give God thanks for the years you had. That's important too. Hang around people who help you focus on the good. Some of you need to drop some dead weight in your life, frankly. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If your closest friends are grateful, you're probably going to become more grateful. If you hang around with people who help you focus on the good and the noble and the praiseworthy, if, if you run around with a bunch of depression essential oil salesmen, okay, then that's how you're going to end up. It's really hard to be around constantly negative people and be super positive. I feel bad about the essential oil thing. I'm not against them. I just, uh, it was an illustration, okay? <laughs> if you sell essential oils, okay, just don't sell toxicity to people. That's all I'm asking, okay? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, where was I? Oh, avoid frequent comparisons, okay? The more you compare yourself to others, the more you compare them to you, uh, generally, that's not a good thing. Parable of the vineyard workers is your biblical example here. Uh, you know, maybe remember the story. Workers are hired at three different times of the day. At the end of the day, they all get paid the same. And they find out the people who started in the morning feel like they got gypped because they worked longer for more. And you remember the response of the owner of the vineyard is, I'm sorry, whose vineyard is it again? Yep. Yeah. Well, okay then. Um, parable of the talents is another one. This guy gets five, this guy gets two, this guy gets one. Well, that's not fair. Well, who's giving out the talents? Whose talents are they? I don't know. Uh, the moral of the story is that the person who gives them out has sovereignty over how that goes, and the ones who's, who's faithful with little will be given more. So, the more you compare yourself to people, uh, typically the less content you're going to be. 2 Corinthians 10.12 says, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Next, spend time with people who have less. This is like the inverse of the parable of the vineyard workers. You know, I remember one time, I, it was a Sunday morning, and I, uh, I, was, uh, I went to a 7-Eleven to get some gasoline uh, on my way to church. And I remember um, getting so frustrated. Uh, actually, um, I might have been on my way home. Because I remember being in the church building that morning. And there's no cold like old church building cold. Man, I've been in the snow in Colorado. I've been on the top of Mount Whitney when it's 15 degrees and blustering up there. Old church building is the coldest cold there is. I don't know how they make that stuff. I don't know what pit of hell that, that comes from. It was so bad. If you go into a drafty church building, you cannot get warm. I don't know what it is. It's creepy. But I remember griping about how cold it was in the building because the heaters weren't working again that day. And uh, going to get some gasoline. And then I look across the street at the park, and there are people sleeping outside in the park. And I go, you know what? All right, all right. You know, <laughs> you're right. You're right. I'm ungrateful. It adds perspective, right? A different, because now there's a big difference between me hitting my own brake to try to avoid an accident. And have you ever watched an accident happen? When you see an accident happen, how much are you thinking about yourself? Yep. You're not, right? So all of a sudden now your life, your perspective, everything changes because it's the other guy's problem. And you want to help. It changes the way that we, we do our lives. 
All right, enough of that. Next point, quickly, we're, we're rounding third. Where your worry is, there your heart will be also. What you worry about tells you a lot about your priorities. You tell me what worries you all the time and what keeps you awake at night, and I can probably tell you where your priorities are. Now, that's a blessing and a curse. Uh, the curse side of it is sometimes you wake up and realize, I'm worried about things that are pretty shallow. But that's also a blessing because you realize, you know, maybe I should be worrying about more important things. Um, if, if I'm always worried, I'm, I'm rolling around uh, because my favorite football team is, might get knocked out of the playoffs tomorrow. And that's what's bothering me. Uh, and that's what I'm obsessed with. That tells you something about your priority system. Um, and we need to pay attention to this because what we worry about often shapes our thoughts and our action. Your, the reality that you might hit the guy in front of you in the car causes you to change. Everything else goes out the window. Now it's all about hitting the brake on the, on the car. And so what you worry about can really be instructive, and you need to, we all need to pay attention to it so that we know what's going to likely lead our thoughts and our actions uh, going forward. Paul says, I've discovered the secret. This is the next section. We didn't read this, but we're going to read it now. Paul discovered the secret to what he calls contentment and joy. And again, he'd been through it all. He rattles off a long list in Scripture of being shipwrecked, beaten, whipped, left for dead, abandoned at sea. I mean, just on and on and on. Okay? This guy's been through it. And from prison, he writes this, Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation I'm in. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what's the secret? That he can do all things through him and strengthens him. The secret of being content is Christ. That he is, if you will, at hand. And so lastly, Christ secures our present and our future. The reason I guarantee you you're going to be okay is because the Lord is at hand. Amen. He's at hand. The church is going to be fine. I don't know. Because the Lord said it's going to be fine. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. I'm not worried about the church. Church, like, folding up the tent globally? Good luck with that. Not going to happen. And every time that everybody says, makes fun of the church or persecutes it, it just grows. Go back to the book of Acts and read that. That's our next series, by the way. We're going to be doing Acts. And uh, yeah, man, there's some good stuff in there. But he secures the present and the future. So I think a lot of us, when we, when we worry about stuff, if we were able to compare it to the, to, to the reality that Paul gives us today, we'd really put our, our worries in perspective. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a little book called The Two Advocates. And uh, in it, he, tells this, he gives this illustration. He says, imagine you're a billionaire. We're off to a good start, aren't we? That feels pretty good. And you have three $10 bills in your wallet. If you're a billionaire, you've got three $10 bills in your wallet. You get out of a cab, you hand the driver one of your bills for an $8 fare. Later in the day, you look in and you find you've only got one $10 bill in your pocket. So you go, well, either I dropped a $10 bill somewhere or I gave the taxi driver two bills. So what are you going to do? You're going to get upset? You're going to go to the police, demand they search the city for the cab driver? Nope. <laughs> They're going to go, oh well, and shrug. Because you lost $10. You're a billionaire. What's $10? It's 
And then he writes this. He goes, this week, somebody criticized you. Something you bought or invested in turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you wanted to happen didn't go the way you wanted it to. These are real losses. But what are you going to do if you're a Christian? Will this setback disrupt your contentment with life? Will you shake your fist at God, toss and turn at night? If so, I submit it's because you don't know how truly rich you are. If you're that upset about your status with other people, if you're constantly lashing out at people for hurting your feelings, you might call it a lack of self-control or lack of self-esteem, and it is. But more fundamentally, you've totally lost touch with your identity. And as a Christian, you're a spiritual billionaire and you're wringing your hands over $10. We are unspeakably wealthy in Christ, spiritually. So why do we talk as though we're broke, spiritually? Why do we often think and speak as people who have no hope? There's a band from Iceland called Sigur Rós. You guys ever even know them? Anybody know that band at all? One? Yeah. And it's exactly the people I would have expected knew that. <laughs> yeah. I listen to them all the time to study, too. They're great, study music, and they're awesome. Um, so we, we can have a party sometime and do it together. But they have uh, their own, one of the things that makes them unique Typical Icelanders, they created their own, essentially their own language to do all their songs in. So nobody really has any idea what they're saying, okay? Um, and they're really just noises that they think embody the feeling of the song. I told you it was weird, okay? <laughs> uh, and they have a name for this language. Anybody know what it is? There's only two of you that have even heard of the band, probably not. It's called Hopelandic. Hope Landic. I like that. Hope Landic. Something that just communicates hope through its vibe. I, I, I think we ought to speak Hope Landic, is what I'm saying. Like, like, that ought to be our language. We're communicating hope, we're communicating meaning through just the noise our life's making out. We ought to be hopeful. We, we, we ought to be fluent in Hopelandic. That when you're here in this gathering, you're feeling empowered and you feel like, like God is with you. And when you're out there, you're helping others understand that God is with them too. That if they're in Christ, then He's at hand. And you might say it with words and you might say it with your vibe. The noise your life makes. Being kind, smiling a little more. And you get there by doing what Paul says, not turning him into Cassandra, but he gets to stay Paul, the apostle who's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit imparting truth to us about what it means to be content in Christ, that being able to do all things through Christ and, and focusing on what is good and noble and praiseworthy. And so even in the midst, if we're watching what's going on in Iran and all that and we're worried, we also know we've got brothers and sisters over there who are going through profound persecution, right. uh, always are, and, but they're over there, and we can pray for them in the midst of all of that. And we can, so it keeps it in perspective. We're not slamming the brakes on just looking at the bad. Oh, no, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Where's my support horse? That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's I'm, going to, I'm going to understand and believe what the Lord is saying because I know the future because he's declared it and I believe him and so I will believe that 
contrary to the other stuff that goes on. I won't allow today to steal tomorrow from me. I know that where my worry is, there my heart will be also, so I'm going to try to worry about things that are worth worrying about. And worry is probably even the wrong word. Concern, care. I care. Caring about what happens to the poor is different than worrying about the problem of poverty all the time. I care. I'm compassionate about it. Um, and so as a result, I can act constructively. I I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about it. And I'm certainly going to try not to worry about things that I know don't really matter. They don't really matter. I developed a discipline, and I'll, I'll close with this. Um, I got to the end of football games when USC was playing or one of my other teams were playing. And if we went into third quarter and the score was tied, I turned it off. I do that. I missed a great ending to the Rose Bowl a few years ago, <laughs> Penn State and all that. I missed it. Uh, I missed it because I got to a point where I realized I care too much about this. And whatever happens is going to happen. And I turned it off. Now, those of you who are not fans of sports, that is a Herculean task, okay? Um, you know, <laughs> hiking to the North Pole is not as difficult. Sometimes it's just clicking the remote in a different direction. And for some of you, it might be, I'm turning off the news for a while, getting off social media for a while. You know where those points of toxicity are in your life. And instead, hanging around with people that are a little bit more redemptive in how they talk, and they speak Hopelandic, you know? And you, 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 you hear what they say, and you try to speak it back to each other, back and forth. And I think if we're not careful, we're going to wake up one day and realize we spend a lot more time rejoicing. We might even rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says, rejoice. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And those who are going to be passing the elements, go ahead and take your spot. And as we do, uh, I'm going to read this text as our prayer this morning. Back to Philippians 4, 4 to 9. We take this every Sunday here at New Vintage Church. Bread and cup representing the body and blood of Jesus who died on our behalf and sealed our future with his blood. So let us pray. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Father, now we celebrate Jesus, the one who is most lovely, most commendable, most excellent, most worthy of praise, and we give you thanks for what he has done for us. We take this bread and we take this cup 
with a spirit of thanks and of focusing on the fact that you are in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit very much at hand. And so we rejoice in the name of Jesus. Amen.